The Lord's table has been implemented for the church age in order to give believers a regular opportunity to reflect upon their salvation and to be reminded of the fact that we are all equally recipients of God's grace. The purpose of the Lord's table is therefore that of a memorial fellowship meal. The fellowship is with God. It is not a meal that is related to fellowship with one another. It is to teach us and remind us of the basis for our salvation. The Lord's table was instituted for all believers and is therefore not to be restricted to those who have church membership. The only requirement is that you should be someone who has put their faith alone in Christ alone. The Lord's table was initiated by the Lord Jesus Christ the night before he went to the cross. He took two elements of the Passover meal that had been part of Jewish ritual since 1440 B.C., and the Lord invested them with new meaning. The unleavened bread was a picture of his humanity that was impeccable, that it was without sin. Leaven represents sin in the Scriptures, and the fact that the bread is unleavened speaks of the fact that he was qualified to go to the cross and there to die as a substitute for our sins. The fact that it was unleavened speaks of the fact that he was sinless. He was, the Scripture says, he who knew no sin, and yet he was made sin for us on the cross that the righteousness of God might be found in us. The cup represents the sacrifice of Christ. It is a visible, visual reminder of his spiritual substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, wherein he gave himself as a substitute for our sins and paid the penalty for our sins. The penalty for sin is spiritual death, not physical death. He paid the penalty for our sins between 12 noon and 3 p.m., at the conclusion of which he said, It is finished. He paid the penalty for our sins before he died physically. He died physically in order to demonstrate two things. First of all, that he would have victory over physical death and thus demonstrate that the greatest problem, the greatest consequence of sin was defeated and conquered by him, and therefore he could conquer all other consequences of sin. And second, to demonstrate that God the Father approved and accepted of his his sacrifice on the cross and promoted him uh, to heaven through the resurrection body. When we come to the Lord's table, it is a time of quiet reflection, a time for us to focus on who Jesus Christ is and on what he has done for us. It is a time of concentration, a time for us to recall what we have learned about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it is a time of of reminder, a time, a memorial time. This is something that you find throughout the Scriptures, that uh, God, for example, in the Old Testament would have the Jews after they crossed the Jordan, put down 12 stones in a rock cairn so that future generations could come along and say, Mommy or Daddy, what's that pile of stones there for? And they would say, this is to remind us of what God has done. Human beings frequently and easily seem to forget what has happened last week or the month before or weeks before, and we frequently forget the fact that... uh, we are, were lost sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are what we are, and we have what we have solely because of the grace of God. And so this is a time for us to reflect upon that. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthian church that uh, they should examine themselves to make sure they were ready to uh, partake of the Lord's table and not to partake of it out of fellowship and not to partake of it in a light or disrespectful manner, which had happened there, and as a result they were going through various stages of divine discipline, so much so that some in the congregation had died the sin unto death because of the trivial way in which they treated the Lord's table. Therefore, we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, confess your sins, to make sure you're in fellowship, to make sure that you are ready to partake of this uh, most significant ritual in the church age. Uh, I'm going to now ask the two deacons to come forward. Let's bow our heads together in silent prayer, and then I will ask uh, Dave Tongren to return thanks for the bread.
our Lord broke the bread and he distributed among the disciples and he said, This is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Ken Tibiash to return. Thanks for the cup, please. Our Lord then took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's all stand together and turn in your hymnals to hymn number 258. 258. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's uh, bow our heads together, uh, and I'll open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together to study your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself to us, that that we have absolute truth upon which we can rely. Father, we thank you for the freedoms we have in this nation, that we have the opportunity to gather together, to assemble freely together to study your word. Father, we continue to pray for this nation that you would keep us free, for our freedom is kept not by our military might, not by our power, not by our wisdom, but by you. Father, we pray that you would continue to give wisdom and guidance to our leaders, that you would protect our president, protect our military leaders and our political leaders, that uh, that you would give them wisdom, that they might be able to make wise decisions as they execute this war on terrorism. Father, now we pray that you would help us to understand the things we, we study today and that we might have a greater insight into uh, the mechanics for the spiritual life, the importance of the spiritual life, and how our Lord Jesus Christ was a pioneer for that spiritual life and all that that entails. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Second John. Second John, where we began our study of this short 13-verse epistle. This morning we're going to focus mostly on background items related to understanding this epistle and the main ideas in this epistle. Much about Second John is really enshrouded in mystery. In most epistles we know to whom they were addressed. We know clearly, for there is a clear statement, for example, in the Pauline epistles, We know precisely who wrote the epistle. We know the time of the writing of the epistle, or we can tell, as in most of the Pauline epistles, uh, with pretty good, with a pretty good uh, certainty when they were written because we can set those epistles against the background of the book of Acts and the historical information that we have there. But that is not true. Many of those things are not true about the epistle of 2 John. The author identifies himself only as the elder in verse 1. The recipients are not identified by either location or name. In fact, for centuries there has been debate 
about whether this epistle is addressed to a literal individual lady or whether this is just a metaphor for a local church. There is even confusion about the nature and purpose of this epistle in the minds of some, and I'll give a, read an illustration of that before the morning's done. It's amazing, actually, that such a tiny epistle of only 13 verses is so much debated. But as we shall see, there is a tremendous amount of, of significant information in this epistle, and it reiterates and reinforces many of the same ideas, the same themes, the same doctrines that we have seen uh, emphasized in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapters, the Gospel of John chapters 13 through 17, and in the Epistle of 1 John, which we concluded last week. Let's pick up a few points on the background. The author. Most people agree that the author is the Apostle John, here referred to under the term the elder. However, there has been some debate in church history because there are some early writers. For example, in the 3rd century A.D., there was a writer by the name of Eusebius who wrote a church history, an ecclesiastical history, which is the basis for much of our knowledge on what took place in that period between the death of the Apostle John up to the early uh, or the end of the 3rd century. The, uh, in that book, Eusebius mentions another individual, roughly uh, a, con- a contemporary of the Apostle John, at least in his later years, who is called simply John the Presbyter or John the Elder. And some people have suggested that this is a reference to that individual and not the Apostle John, although that can pretty much be dismissed because of the style and vocabulary of this epistle. If you read through this epistle in the original Greek, it becomes clear that it has the same marks, the same style, the same vocabulary that we have found already in our study of 1 John and the Upper Room Discourse. So most people, without any doubt, uh, emphasize the fact that it is uh, the Apostle John who wrote both 2 John and 3 John. If you just turn the page, you'll notice that 3 John is addressed the same way and comes from a person indicated as the elder. So we conclude that it must be John the Apostle because of the style of writing, the vocabulary, and the theology of this brief epistle. Now what about the date? When did he write it? Well, there are some that suggest, there are a few, that suggest that this epistle was written before the fall of Jerusalem. Now let's put a little timeline up here on the overhead so that you can orient to the first century. We'll start here with the cross. The cross takes place in 33 A.D. And sometime around 35 to 36 that Paul uh, trusts Christ as Savior. Paul sees the Lord on the road to Damascus, trusts Christ as Savior, and is commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles. Most of Paul's epistles are written between 52 and approximately 64 A.D., and somewhere between 64 and 66 A.D. is when uh, Paul uh, is, is martyred and he is, uh, he is beheaded. Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D., between 66 In 70 A.D., you have the War of the Rebellion. The Jews are in revolt against the authority of Rome, and Jerusalem is destroyed, and Israel goes out under the fifth cycle of discipline in 70 A.D. Somewhere around 90, and we can't be precise because we don't have enough information, somewhere between 90 to 95 A.D., the Apostle John is exiled to Patmos. Now, this is the traditional view of the dating of the epistles of John as well as the book of Revelation. Now, I believe as a result of my study that that John is still in Israel prior to the collapse of the nation, the defeat of the nation by the Romans, and it is not until after 70 A.D., that John moves his seat 
of operation to Ephesus. And he is the pastor of the church in Ephesus until he is exiled to the Isle of Patmos somewhere around 90 uh, A.D. And while he is on the Isle of Patmos, he will receive the revelation of Jesus Christ and write the book of Revelation. But also during this time, he will write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And these epistles are written to his church at Ephesus. I believe 1st John was written for the church at Ephesus, but also it would be passed around among the other churches in that vicinity. Now, some of these churches are mentioned in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Ephesus, Smyrta, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea were all small t- towns, uh, all within a day's walk from Ephesus. And so it's very likely that First John was written to Ephesus and was a, uh, a, called an encyclical, and it circled among these all of these particular churches. Uh, that's First John. Now, Second John is addressed to the lady, and that was probably one of those seven churches, but we can't be sure, and we certainly don't have the information necessary to pin down which one it was, although some people uh, think that it was Laodicea. Others think it was Colossae. Uh, there's a number of uh, options. Third John is written to a man named Gaius. So we have the problem of the date, and it seems likely that most likely that it's written during this period between A.D. 90 and 95 toward the end of John's life. He lives to approximately 96 A.D. Now, to whom is he writing? To whom is he writing? We read in the first verse that this is the elder writing to the elect lady and her children. There are two broad options that we have. The first option is that the reference is to be taken literally. That means he is writing to a specific uh, lady and her physical progeny, her children. And the second view is that this is not a reference to a lady at all, but is simply a metaphorical reference to the church, referring to uh, a church and church members. Well, let's examine the first view before we get into the second one. The first view is the view that takes the reference literally. The first option that some people suggest is that this is not to be translated to the elect lady, but that the word in the Greek that is translated elect, which is the Greek word eklektos, E-K-L-E-K-T-O-S, eklektos, that this is really a a proper name for eklekta or elekta. You find different spellings and different uh, different writings, and that this would be the honorable lady elekta and her children. So this is an individual's name, and it is addressed to her. The problem with this is that the word eklekta is used again down in verse 13, where uh, John closes out by saying, The children of your elect sister greet you. So unless uh, this name is, uh, if, that, if this is a proper name, then it would have to be taken as a proper name down in verse 13, where verse 13 would be the children of your sister electa greet you. And then you would have two sisters, each named uh, electa. And unless you're a fan of the Bob Newhart show, where you have... Uh, you know, Larry and my brother Daryl and my other brother Daryl. You know, most people don't have children unless they're, uh, you know, a little bit uh, off the beam. They don't name their children the same name unless you're, um, what's it, cra- crazy Jocko here who's got two children named that he names, get, keeps naming with the same name. So um, that's not likely. So you have two different uh, individuals here, and um, it's probably not used as a proper name. So the second option then is those who come along and say that know the name Curia. Curia, which is the word for for 
uh, actually lady. It is the feminine form of the noun kurios for lord. So this is not the word gune for woman, but is a term for uh, someone of aristocracy. It's a name for someone who is treated honorably, and that this is actually a proper name. So it would be the uh, chosen or the elect curia, where her name is, um, and see what happens in an odd thing in, in transliterating from Greek to English is the U, the upsilon becomes a Y, and that this would be addressed to the chosen or the honorable curia. This is the uh, second option, and though curia was used as a proper name during this time, the absence of an article before the word elect, eclecta, uh, argues against this. You would normally have an article there uh, if this were going to be a proper name. You would have an article before uh, eclectos. Another problem is that both here and in Third John, the recipient is named, and you also have specific individuals such as Diotrephes and Demetrius who are named. So it, it, it seems to indicate that if he was speaking to a specific individual, that the name would be mentioned. Another option that has been suggested is that uh, if you identify the church as one of those seven churches as the church in Laodicea, then perhaps this is the woman named Nympha who is mentioned in Colossians 4.15. In Colossians 4.15, there's a reference to Nympha in Laodicea. But the problem with that is that Paul wrote Colossians in about 62 or 63 A.D., which is about 32 or 33 years earlier than this, and the chances are that that the church would have either grown or moved. Uh, it's still possible that it would be the same group meeting in the same house with the same at the same woman's house. It's not um, it's not likely because of the time frame. Furthermore, it is not certain at all that this was in Laodicea. There is no indication whatsoever of what the uh, what the location is. In fact, there's a lot of debate among scholars regarding the reference to Nympha in Laodicea that some suggest that it's really Hierapolis or maybe even in Colossae itself because it's an awkward grammatical construction. So any of these suggestions are very speculative, and we just don't have enough information. Furthermore, there is strong support for the view that this is simply a symbolic reference to the church, the local church, that met in whatever town this was. Uh, we find support for this view, first of all, in the Old Testament. There's uh, several cases in which Israel or cities in Israel were personified as women. We have phrases such as the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Judah, the daughter of my people, the daughter of Jerusalem. In fact, Ezekiel describes the city of Samaria as the woman Ahola and Jerusalem, Jerusalem as Aholabah. And so there is definite precedent in the Old Testament to refer to God's people as this in this feminized form. The same is true in the New Testament, where we have the church referred to as the wife or the bride of Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul refers to the church of Corinth as a chaste virgin betrothed to one husband. Furthermore, there is an interplay throughout this epistle between the use of a second-person singular you and a second-person plural you, which is also characteristic of many epistles where Paul addresses the church as a whole with a singular you, and, he can, and then a few verses later he will address the church as a whole with a plural you all. So there, has, there is precedent for that, and if we look in this particular verse, or in this particular chapter, we see in verse 5 the statement, I plead with you, lady, that is you, singular, referring to the church as a whole, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, singular. And then in verse, uh, then it says that we love one another. So you have a plural there. And then in verse 6, that, we, that this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you, plural, have heard from the beginning, you, plural, should walk in it. So in verse 5, he uses the singular, and still in the same context, 
he shifts to a plural. And that fits the pattern of many epistles. Furthermore, uh, Prof. Hodges notes that uh, in verse 12, verse 12, uh, John says, How many things to, uh, having many things to write to you, and there that is in the uh, plural. And then he says in verse 13, the children of your elect sister, and that's in the singular. So it shifts back and forth from plural to singular. And says, the children of your elect sister greet you. He asks these questions. Why do these children not also greet the elect lady's children who would be their cousins? Why is he just saying um, the children greet the other children? He says, um, why do they only greet the, the children of the elect sister? Uh, why do the children of the elect sister greet only the elect lady? Is the sister away? Is she dead? Or where is she? So there's, there's a number of inconsistencies here if we are to take this as referring to a specific uh, individual. So the best solution seems to be that the elect lady is a term, a metaphorical term, a corporate designation for a church. Furthermore, if this, and this again doesn't... Uh, isn't a a definitive argument, but if this is an address to an individual lady, it is the only epistle, the only book of the Bible that is addressed to a woman. So the conclusion is that on the basis of grammatical and uh, textual evidence in, in the epistle itself, the best solution is that the elect lady is a corporate designation for a local church in the vicinity of Ephesus and that the children are the members of that local church. Now, you can't say that the term elect lady is a reference to the church as a whole, that is, the universal church, because then there would be a a sister to the universal church. And there's only one universal church. There is no no sister. So it's clearly a reference to an individual local church in the vicinity of Ephesus. Now that solves some of the problems, or at least acquaints you with some of the problems in the background. Who wrote it and to whom is, is it written and when? Now why is this written? For what purpose is John written? Now this we derive from the key words that are used in this epistle. The first key word is the word truth. The word truth, which is a key word in the Gospel of John, in 1 John, and in both 2nd and 3rd John. It is the Greek word aletheia. A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A. Aletheia. And this word is used five times in this epistle all of them in the first four verses. He says, To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth, as we receive commandment from the Father. So truth is taken and emphasized right up front in the context of this epistle as a key idea. A second word that is important in this study is the word love, which is used four times in this epistle. Uh, He says uh, to the elect lady whom I love in truth, And then he says, from the Lord, uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. That is the second use of love. Verse 6, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So love is a key word in this epistle. Uh, In the end of verse 5, we are to love one another. The third key word is the word walk. The word walk, which is used three times, that we are to walk in truth. We are to walk uh, loving one another. We are to walk according to his commandments. So this emphasizes the Christian life. And then a uh, fourth key word is abide. 
which is, of course, a key word mentioned in earlier epistles, and abide is used uh, two times in this epistle. So we put these together. We see that the emphasis here is going to be a relation, dealing with the relationship between truth and love. And truth has to do with the absolute truth of Bible doctrine, and that love has to do not with an emotion or a feeling or sentimentality, but love has to do first and foremost with understanding what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and understanding that we are able to walk by means of truth. This is what he emphasizes in the first verse. To the elect lady and her children whom I love, and the uh, New King James Version says, in truth, actually it is the preposition in, plus the dative of Aletheia, which says, I love by means of truth. As we have seen, it is Bible doctrine that is a means of spiritual growth. We are to grow by means of uh, uh, by means of grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So doctrine is a means of growth, and it's a means of love. So love starts with the knowledge and understanding of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, and then it is based on that. Jesus Christ said to love one another as I have loved you. So love starts with understanding what goes on at the cross, and therefore love functions on the basis of doctrine. So if you have doctrine without love, then that doctrine is nothing more than gnosis, academic truth. And as Paul says, it is not in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that knowledge puffs up and just produces arrogance, and that's gnosis, not epinosis. If you have love without doctrine, then all you have here is sentimentality and emotion. So either way, you distort either doctrine or love, but you have to be careful. Um, you, you only can love doctrinally. It's not a case of either or. It is a case of genuine doctrine produces genuine love. Now, the theme of this epistle is going to be to correct, to warn and to correct false doctrine. The emphasis here is a warning to the church to be on guard against traveling preachers. Uh, apparently this, this church was small, didn't have their own pastor. And so this also we see from the concept of the elder here that, that John functioned as an absentee pastor. They did not have a local pastor, and they did not have regular face-to-face teaching, so they received letters from John. They also had itinerant pastors who came through, and some of these were teaching the same false doctrine about Jesus Christ that we ran into in the first epistle. So there's a warning against these deceivers who do not abide in truth. Notice again the emphasis that abiding in Christ, abiding in fellowship, is first and foremost related to abiding in doctrine. Doctrine is not optional. Doctrine is crucial. Specifically, they are perverting the doctrine of the person of Christ, and that has profound implications for the spiritual life of the believer. In verse 7 we read, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ is both the Father and the Son. In light of this warning against false teachers who distort the truth, remember these people are probably wonderful individuals. They probably have pleasing personalities. They may be excellent communicators who have tremendous powers of rhetoric and and oratory. But nevertheless, they have shaded the truth, and they are uh, have created an imbalance because of they've denied the doctrine of Christ. So in light of that, I happen to be down in my study this morning getting ready for today, and I looked something up just to see what was said in this one book I had, and I was just appalled at what I read. So I thought this would be a great example in light of the fact that in, in recent... Um, 
In recent weeks, we've been doing some thinking uh, uh, and developing of the importance of critical thinking skills. We have another example to help you develop some critical thinking skills. And so I want to read this, this quote to you. Uh, now, I want you to know that the man who says this is probably has the largest or one of the largest radio Bible teaching ministries in the country. He is a famous, well-known pastor, former president of a well-known seminary, and should know better. I'm going to make some other comments about him in a minute because things like that are interesting uh, interesting information to help us understand things. This is how he summarizes First John. Now listen to the imbalance that's here. There's a certain amount of truth here, but there's important imbalance. He says, teeter-totters must be equally weighted or the game goes sour, as every child knows. A bigger child on one end of the wooden plank can, at will, keep the other child stranded in the air or allow the child to come crashing down to the ground. When that happens, an ankle can become sprained, a bottom bruised, or a tongue bitten. Severely out of balance, the teeter-totter not only ceases to be fun, it becomes dangerous. Similarly, when the balance between truth and love is unequally weighted in the church, it can cause serious damage. Now, I want you to understand what he just did. He says you balance truth with love. That's not what John is doing. He immediately has he started with a false presupposition. John is not saying you can choose between truth and love. It's truth by means of, or it's love by means of. Truth. In other words, you, you can't weigh one more than the other. If you have doctrine as it is, uh, and you're operating on the filling of the Holy Spirit, then you have truth and love as one thing that is completely complementary with one another. You don't cause this balancing act. This is one of the greatest problems of the influence of psychology in our world today. And you have so many people who are in reaction to doctrine. Because what they're really in reaction to is what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians uh, 8, and that is uh, these people who just have a lot of academic knowledge and gnosis, and they're puffed up and arrogant. And, that's, and they confuse that with true knowledge of doctrine. I also know something about the background of this, uh, this particular pastor. He came out of one of the largest and one of the uh, best doctrinal teaching churches uh, in this country. And yet he reacted to the pastor about 40 years ago, and he's still in reaction. And he thinks that, and he never has emphasized doctrine, and that was very clear from his particular administration when he was the president of that seminary. He goes on to say, some churches, obese with truth, bully the members that sit in their pews. Now, see, he he looks on truth there as, as, as something that you can bully people. You can't bully people with the truth. You, 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 if you understand the truth, then you're going to be growing by means of the Holy Spirit and applying love. He says, Bridges full of doctrine, thickly lined with Greek and Hebrew, often prove too big, and the balance is upset. Plopped rotundly on the other end, love can be so gorged on a candy, gum, and soft drink diet that it too can become out of balance. This seesaw effect either keeps the truth teetering up in the air or sends it crashing to the ground. Some churches can be so truthful that they are often unloving, others so loving that they are untruthful. The postcard of Second John serves as a fulcrum to keep these two playmates in a happy balance. See, this, that's not what this epistle is about at all. It's about keeping your doctrine correct so that you can be in fellowship with God so that you can mature and grow in the spiritual life. Interesting thing about this individual is that his very own concept of truth is somewhat somewhat shaded. I was in a conversation some years ago with several uh, Bible college professors and, and uh, seminary professors who uh, knew him quite well, and I posed a question without mentioning his name. I posed a question. I said, now, if you were president of a seminary, and some of you men are, I said, and you engaged in a public relations campaign where you told everybody that, that, um, that's, that, that your particular seminary was still promoting the same doctrines, the same teaching of the founder, and, as, and the things that had been taught there for the previous 40 years, and that wasn't true. Do you think that is 
a sign of integrity. And they all said, oh, no, of course. And then I mentioned the man's name, and I said, well, he's promoting. This is exactly his PR campaign, and he tells everybody that nothing has changed at this seminary, and yet everybody knows it has changed. And, in fact, the meeting that we're at this particular that particular week, um, the meeting we were at was uh, there because of the distortions that had occurred at that particular school. So, once again, we have the fact that, that when people are influenced by the human viewpoint thinking of the culture around them, it destroy, when it destroys their doctrinal integrity, it will destroy their whole concept of love. And this is, was a fantastic illustration in this individual of just how that had taken place. His concept of doctrine had been distorted and warped because he got in an emotional reaction to a personality some 40 years earlier and that shaded and characterized his whole ministry for the next 40 years so that he never put a real emphasis on doctrine he put all the emphasis on a, on application and when you emphasize applica- when you make this teeter-totter concept which is typical almost anybody any pastor in this country is going to say oh isn't that wonderful but when you juxtapose those two like that you're distorting the whole concept. You can't juxtapose those two. They're, they are equally together. And um, you can't emphasize truth over against love because truth, doctrine understood as doctrine under the filling of the Spirit will always produce the kind of love. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. You walk in truth. You walk in doctrine. You walk by the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is what first? Love, joy, peace, Patience. So if you're not walking in truth, it's not going to produce love. And if there's no love being produced, then you're not walking in truth. It's not the juxtaposition of those two ideas. In fact, when you think that way, you are thinking like a pagan. You are not thinking according to the Scripture. And yet that is what dominates the thinking of so many churches today and shows why the church, the evangelical church in America is so rotten on the inside is because most of the people leading it think just like the world outside the church and they don't understand the distinctions and they've completely missed the message of both 1 John and 2 John. So John begins, let's start off with the first verse. It begins... The elder telling us who wrote it. This is the Greek word presbyteros. Presbyteros. P R E S B U T E R O S. Presbyteros. Now, as I said earlier, when you uh, transcribe from Greek to English, the upsilon becomes a Y, and that's where we get our word. Presbyterian, and it is the word that is usually translated elder, and it has several uh, connotations. One is of an old man or an elderly person, someone who is up in years, and it goes from that literal meaning to a figurative meaning of someone who is uh, mature. Furthermore, the term elder refers to someone who is in a position of authority and leadership, And in that sense, it came into the canon of Scripture to refer to the leader of a congregation and emphasizes the spiritual maturity of the man we call the pastor. So the term presbyteros emphasizes or looks at the pastor from the viewpoint of his spiritual maturity. There are three words that are used together in the Scripture to refer to the leader of a congregation. Now what has happened in church history is you've had some people come along and take the concept of the term elder and the fact that this occurs in many cases in the plural as elders to emphasize a type of government called plurality of elders. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I don't get caught up in a lot of argument between whether or not there ought to be a plurality of elders or congregational government or or these discussions on different uh, kinds of church government and what the Bible really teaches, because I find that in practice... In practice, these things are really vary from church to church. I don't care what you call the, um, the, the, the men who lead the church, whether you call them deacons 
or elders, you can have a board of deacons or a board of elders that seek to dominate the pastor-teacher, the man who is the designated shepherd and leader of the congregation. I've seen this. I've been in churches where you had a so-called congregational government, and you had deacons, and the deacons viewed the pastor as an employee, and they tried to run the pastor. I've seen that in elder churches. Uh, I've been in, in fact, my last church had a board of elders, but nevertheless, the, their view was the pastor-teacher was still viewed as the leader of the congregation and the man in authority, and under him you had uh, elders, and then you also had a board of deacons. But in terms of how that church functioned, it didn't function any differently from the way our government is set up as a congregational government. We would have a congregational meetings to discuss information with the congregation. The congregation would vote. In other words, what's happened in church history as things are practiced today in America is pretty much, I think it's a moot question as to how you, what you call people. It, what matters is how they function and how they carry out the role. But there are three terms that are used to refer to the pastor. One is elder, and I believe that there is primarily one elder per congregation, and that emphasizes his role as the spiritual mature leader. The second word that is used is one that is translated bishop in 1 Corinthians 3, and I mean 1 Timothy 3, and this is the word episkopos, E-P-I-S-K-O-P-O-S, from which we get our English word episcopal. And this was a word that was taken over, and by the middle of the second century A.D., you would go into a city like Laodicea, where you might have three congregations, each run by a pastor, and then one of them became elevated. He was older and more more wise than the other two, so they were always going to him with all their questions, and then he elevated himself to the position of bishop over the other two. But And that became known as the hierarchical bishop view, and that dominated the uh, Roman Catholic Church to the Middle Ages, and uh, then they added archbishops and cardinals and a whole hierarchy to it. But that is not what we see in Scripture. We see in Scripture that these terms, elder and bishop, and then the third term, pastor or pastor-teacher from the Greek word poimen, P-O-I-M-E-N, which means shepherd, that these three terms are used synonymously and interchangeably and a couple of key passages. So these are the three terms. Elder emphasizes his spiritual maturity. Bishop emphasizes his authority as a leader over the congregation. And pastor also not only emphasizes his position as leader, but his position is the one who is to feed the sheep, and he is the one who is responsible for their spiritual uh, nourishment. Now let's look at a couple of passages to see where these are emphasized. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Now, just hold your place there, verse 28. Look back at verse 17 to pick up the context. From Miletus, Paul is now on his way, way to Jerusalem. He's back from his uh, third missionary journey. And he stops off at Ephesus, and he's at the coastal port of Miletus. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, there's not just one church in Ephesus at this time, not just one congregation. There are several. But he refers to the entire body of believers in Ephesus, even though they make up several different congregations, as the church. And the elders are the pastors of the various congregations in Ephesus. So he is addressing the elders, the presbyteroi, that's the plural form, the presbyteroi in Ephesus. Now look down at verse 28. To the presbyteroi, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word episkopos. He has made you bishops. So he's talking to the elders, and he says God has made you bishops over the church to shepherd the church of God. And that's the verb form, poimeo, for pastor. So there you see all three words used in the same context. They were, he, they're referred to as elders back in verse 17. Then he directly calls them episcopoi in verse 28 and says that their responsibility is to shepherd, uh, the church of God, verse 28. The same thing is done by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. So let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort. The elders is a plural presbyteroi. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I want you to notice here that, that Peter is emphasizing his position as a pastor more than his position as an apostle. Even though he was an apostle, even though John was an apostle, and late in life, they became associated with one congregation, and in terms of that function as a pastor to that congregation, they emphasized their position as a presbyteros as opposed to an, ap- an apostle, an apostolos. So the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock. There's a command. It's a verb in the uh, present active imperative. The elders are to shepherd, poimeo. That's the same word for pastor. It's the verb form. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as episcopoi, as overseers. Not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So there we see a clear example of the fact that these three terms emphasize are all talk about the same individual who's the leader of the congregation, who is the uh, man designated by God as the one responsible for the spiritual nourishment and the spiritual growth of that individual congregation. So, John calls himself the elder, ha presbyteros, and he is speaking to this congregation. He is an old man at this time. He is in absentia. He is not there. And so this sets a pattern that in many contexts throughout the history of Christianity, there has not been a pastor, a local pastor present to teach the word. So they have had to receive their teaching either through a uh, written means, and today, of course, we have all kinds of uh, technology available from uh, cassettes to video to television, whatever it may be. But I want to emphasize the fact that that in the hist- in Christianity, in the view of the Scriptures, it is abnormal not to have a face to face, not to be under a face to face ministry. The normal, the the preferred. Situation is for every believer to be involved in a local church under a face-to-face pastor. Now, this is difficult in times when the church as a whole is apostate. It is dif- difficult when you're living in an, a, a culture of apostasy. I know there are people who get the the uh, uh, vast amount of their doctrinal teaching from this ministry. They listen over the Internet or they go to a... Um, or, or they have a, uh, or they get the tapes, and sometimes they live in. I know folks who live in small towns. I know who folks who live in uh, in large cities where there's nobody around who really teaches the truth. Nevertheless, this is an abnormal situation, and people should be involved in a local body of believers. Uh, and sometimes that's very difficult to to do, but that is the normative situation. It is not simply a matter of saying, well, I can get my spiritual truth from a tape recorder, from listening on the Internet or watching TV. Scripture emphasizes that we are a that the body of Christ, the church, is a body. And that means there is interaction among members of the body of Christ. We are to pray for one another. We are to encourage one another. We are to admonish one another. There is, it's a body. It is not 
uh, an island unto itself. The believer is not to be out there running around on his own. That is an extremely unhealthy situation. The believer is to be involved with a body of believers, even if the best you're going to get out of it is that somehow you're going to be an influence, a positive influence on other people. And uh, I know that there are exceptions. I know there are people. Remember years ago I did a funeral for a lady who lived in the extreme southwestern tip of Arizona. If you went a mile out of town and either south or west, you would end up in Texas. And this town had a population of just a couple of thousand people, and there was nobody there who even got the gospel right. And so, you know, I know there are exceptions like that, that the only thing you can do is, is, um, is be involved in, and um, uh, listening to tapes. But this lady was always involved in a local church. She found the best one that, there, and she ended up getting two or three of the pastors on tapes over the years and where they got their some of their theology straightened out. And she was always able to meet a few other believers in that congregation who were positive that she could get with, that she could enjoy some true uh, fellowship around the Word with, and that is important. The Christian life is not a life to be lived in isolation. We, it is a ministry for, for and to one another. Furthermore, there has to be a function of spiritual gifts within the body. Spiritual gifts are designed to function within the body. Spiritual gifts are not outside the body. So if you're a believer and you're living in some town and you're just listening to tapes and you're not involved in a local church, then you are uh, limiting your own priesthood, your own ambassadorship, because you're not in a place where you can function in terms of your spiritual gifts in a local body. So you need to find uh, the best that you can in order to get involved there. Furthermore, if you're married and you have children, you're, you're going to have problems with your children because you need some place where they can be involved in a children's ministry where there can be a prep school or Sunday school so that the children can be trained. Now, I realize there are exceptions, but they are exceptions. Remember, uh, principles are always based on the general rule, the normative condition. It is abnormal to be just listening to a tape recorder. It's abnormal to just listen to the Internet. It's abnormal to have that as your only source of spiritual nourishment. But I do recognize that and there are um, exceptions, and there are places in this country where that's the best you can do, and so you have to make do with that. But you have to realize that is a, 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 an inadequate situation, and the first chance you get to change it, you need to do so. Now, John says, back in Second John, John says the elder, the elder, and he addresses the uh, local congregation and states the, the elder to the elect lady, that is this local church and her children, the members of the church, whom I love in truth, whom I love in truth, and this is in plus the dative, of aletheia, which means I love by means of truth. And here he begins his emphasis on truth, which characterizes the next, uh, or rather the first four verses of this, this opening introduction. And since that introduces us to a whole new doctrine, we will wait to cover that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we have your word, that your word is truth, Jesus said, uh, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, and it is by knowing the truth that we have true freedom. Father, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to put into practice the things that we have learned today, the things that we have studied, that this is not some sort of just academic study where we just learn information about the Bible, but that we recognize that this is the absolute truth. We are learning the thinking of Christ and that we are to think it's Christ's thought. And that the end result of learning the truth is that we convert it from gnosis to epinosis in the soul and that we apply this consistently under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit that he may produce maturity, spiritual maturity in our lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make that both sure and certain. All you need to do to have salvation is to believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. 
It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of impressing God with how good you are. It's not a matter of morality, ritual, church membership, or any other human factor. It is a, simply a matter of trusting in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. At the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life, and that life can never be taken from you. God will never reverse the process. You are eternally secure because that salvation is not dependent on anything you have done, but it's dependent completely upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the things that we have studied today and that you would challenge us with them and that we may apply them consistently in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.